Well, good morning. Back into our study in Revelation, chapter 13. It's all about the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is one of the most prominent and influential actors or players in the final seven years of human government or human history as we know it. But I've got something different for today. We're going to take a step back and go through some of the reasons why it's important to study prophecy, especially concerning the second coming of Christ. And I'm going to give you some reasons for you to consider why it's important to be well-grounded in your understanding of prophecy. Because I know that going through prophecy is difficult because there's lots of unfamiliar language and there's, you've got to understand the context of the chapters and you got to, yeah, there's lots of things to understand. But it's worth it to actually stick at it and to keep studying it because it promises a blessing. So, I've thought of eight reasons why it's good to study prophecy, especially the book of Revelation and Daniel. Prophecy meaning the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? Mainly. So, the first reason. Jesus said that we should seek to understand the end times events. So, Jesus is saying that we should understand prophecy. Jesus said in Matthew 24.15, regarding the tribulation in the book of Daniel, he said, whoever reads, let him understand. So Jesus is encouraging us, exhorting us, whoever reads, let him understand. And what happens if you don't? Well, Jesus said to the Jews in Luke 19.44 that they would be judged because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Jews missed the first coming of Christ even though it was predicted to the very day and there were literally hundreds of other fulfilled prophecies. And they paid a high price. Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple burned down, and the Jewish people scattered all over the world. And now the second reason, about a third of all the Bible is prophecy. To neglect prophecy is to neglect a third of the Bible, and that is wrong. Now why is that wrong? Well, you've probably heard this verse before, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, and it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, a very complicated thing here to learn. It's the definition of the word all. What does all mean? All. (laughs) Okay. So, it's all scripture is given by God and is profitable. Now, that the man of God may be complete. What does complete mean? Well, I looked it up. Complete means to be capable or proficient. Capable or proficient in what? For every good work. We are ambassadors for Christ. So we need to study the whole Bible if we're going to be complete, proficient, or capable as our roles as ambassadors for Christ. So, the third reason is that we are blessed if we do, and that's Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So, I don't know if you realize this, but the book of Revelation is the only book that promises a blessing if it's read aloud in the church. And another reason is that it's relevant for our generation, especially for our generation. We are living in the last days. When Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that the time is near, how much nearer are we that Israel is now a nation again? So it's worth, I believe, keeping up with current events to see that the labor pains of the second coming of Christ are increasing in both speed and intensity. Now what did Jesus say? Like the labor pains were? That he said that there were earthquakes, natural disasters, wars, Rumors of wars, pestilence, other places in the Bible talk about moral decline in the last days, the prediction that Israel become a nation, there's prophetic scenarios where different nations become aligned with each other and start working with each other where they never did before. Uh, There's the crumbling of national sovereignty in Western nations and the moving towards a one world government, 
They're moving towards a one-world economic system and even steps towards a one-world religion. So all these things are going to happen, and as we see them start to happen, we can recognize what's happening and say, this is God. So the fifth one is so we will not be deceived. So I'm going to take a bit of time on this one. And a verse here that helps us is Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed, what? That no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Okay? So there's many places in the scriptures that tell us, do not be deceived. And I look around, and I know that there's many people in cults who would not have been deceived if only they had a good understanding of prophecy. They could avoid these false religions and false teachings and not be held in bondage if they just understood what the Bible said about end-time events. And a good example is those who believe that Jesus was supposed to come back in 1844. And, you know, you're probably familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses. So here's a quote from Britannica, the, you know, the Exolopedia, regarding the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Adventist movement, that's a, a general group of people, emerged in the 1830s around the predictions of William Miller, who proclaimed that Jesus Christ would return in 1843 or 1844. When Christ did not return, as Miller prophesied, Adventists divided into a number of factions. One of these is Jehovah's Witnesses. During the 1870s, Charles Taze Russell established himself as an independent and controversial Adventist teacher. He rejected belief in hell as a place of eternal torment and adopted a non-Trinitarian theology that denied the divinity of Jesus. He also interpreted the second coming, okay, so this is his interpretation of the second coming, in accordance with the literal translation of the original Greek term parousa, or presence, suggesting that Christ would come as an invisible presence and that the parousa, or millennial dawn, had already occurred in 1874. The coming of Christ's invisible presence signaled the end of the current order of society and would be followed by his visible presence and establishment of the millennial kingdom on earth in 1914. <laughs> Although the kingdom did not come, Russell's teachings motivated a number of volunteers to circulate his many books and pamphlets and a periodical called the Watchtower. And it goes on. So, all these errors in end times events and people did blindly follow if they just understood prophecy, if they had a basic understanding of the game plan of the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial reign, the second coming, all those things, then they wouldn't get caught up in these cults and these false teachings. Another Adventist group that came from these similar roots is the SDA, so Seventh-day Adventist. So I'm just going to read Matthew 24, 4-5. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So, number six, assurance for the future. So, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. We're going to read this more later. But it tells us that having a good understanding of end times will result in us having an eternal comfort and a wonderful hope. So instead of the sin, evil and madness that we see seeming to suffocate us and is closing in around us, you know, our country, our society is falling apart, it doesn't cause us to panic and despair. We can look ahead to what will happen. We can see that the current events that we're looking at now that we're experiencing are actually lining up with events prophesied to happen before and during the tribulation. And we see some of these like the cashless society, the one world government, one world religion, world economy, the moral decline, etc. And it says in Luke twenty one twenty eight. Now when these things begin to happen, Jesus is talking about these birth pangs, the signs of the end. Look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. So, basically, the closer we get to the end, the worse things get, 
the more we get excited because we're getting closer. It could be today. Okay, The worse it is, then the more chance there is that the rapture could be right now. And the seventh reason I, I thought of was we have an opportunity to share the gospel. Now, some people say, well, the church, the believers, we're going to go up in the rapture, so who cares? I know that one day we're going to disappear and everything's going to be fine. Why bother learning about the tribulation if we're not going to be there? Who cares? God will take care of it all. Well, if we have that attitude, we will miss the signs of the second coming of Christ. And we will miss out on opportunities to tell others about the amazing number of fulfilled prophecies that have occurred and are occurring in not the first coming of Christ, but, the, but now in our generation. And worst of all, as ambassadors, we're failing to warn people that judgment is near. The tribulation is judgment, it's God's judgment on the earth. And it's our duty as ambassadors of Christ to point people to the fulfilled prophecies, especially those in our own times, and help them to see that the Bible is true. And a verse that is a very strong motivator for me is 1 Peter 3, 14-15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be willing to give a defense or reason to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So, Given that we are living in the last days, it makes sense that we should know what's going on and be able to use that to try and persuade people to come to know Christ. And this last one, number eight, we have an opportunity to inform people in church who are unsaved that will go into the tribulation because they're not truly born again. A lot of people who think they're Christians are not Christians. So if we can teach them what is going to happen, and they might think, oh yeah, that's what the Bible says, but I don't really care, I'm just going to live my life, I add God to my life, I don't want to change. They'll go into the tribulation because they weren't really saved, but they'll know, hang on a sec, this is exactly what they said the Bible said was going to happen. It's happening just the way the Bible said. That must mean that I didn't repent. They told me I need to repent, but I didn't. So, our ministry continues after we're gone. What we say to people who are lost, our ministry continues after we're gone. So, back into our study. That's a little diversion there. Just a little motivation to, to keep on track and to keep studying through the book of Revelation. Because it does get difficult, understand, and to keep putting the hours and the time into focusing on and understanding it. So, Previously, we finished going through Revelation 12, and we looked at anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jews, and how, at its core, who's inspiring it? Satan, yeah. And his goal is to destroy and disrupt God's plan of salvation. We looked at one of the sources of this anti-Semitism, and it's the church, and it's the doctrine called replacement theology, where the church has replaced Israel, according to their allegorical interpretation of Scripture. But I need to mention that there's another form of anti-Semitism, and that's the ancient hatred. It's called the ancient hatred. It's the Jews versus the Arabs. Okay, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And this hatred started all the way back when Isaac was just weaned. Ishmael mocked Isaac. Hagar mocked Sarah. And this hatred, this jealousy has been going on between these brothers since the time of Abraham. Now Ishmael became a great nation, 12 kings, uh, 12 nations, and basically they're the Arab people. And God did bless them like Abraham prayed. But the Arabs, those who descended from Ishmael, have hated the Israelites or Jews ever since. Now, Muhammad came along much later, he's a 6th century AD, and what he did was systematize or justify the hatred that had been present all along and make it a part of the religion of Islam. So, you know that the Muslims hate the Jews, but the Arabs already hated the Jews before Islam was invented. 
So if you ever wondered why almost everyone in the Middle East seems to hate Israel, now you know. It's called the ancient hatred. It goes back to this rivalry between Ishmael and Isaac, two of the sons of Abraham. So now we come to Revelation 13, and it's about the Antichrist. Now, you know, a lot of people have heard about the Antichrist. They've seen it on movies and whatever. But you know what? If you ask them, okay, what do you know about the Antichrist? You get a blank stare or you get some movie scene that they're going to recount to you. And it's probably not biblical, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so it's important that we know about the Antichrist. He's an important figure in the Bible. And it gives us, because the Antichrist is based on, motivated by Satan, and it helps us to know who our enemy is. So let's start with a simple question, something you already know and something that's going to give us a framework to help us put the pieces, the puzzle pieces that we're going to get today, put them all together and make a clear picture. And the question is, when does the Antichrist rule the world? When do you think he rules the world? Which dispensation? When is the Antichrist going to rule? Is it the the law before the cross? Is it the grace, the church age dispensation of grace? Or is it the tribulation dispensation? Or the, yeah, it's the tribulation, yeah. So it's that tribulation, that seven-year tribulation is when the Antichrist is revealed and comes to power. So that's what we're going to learn a lot about today, or start learning a lot about today. And Revelation 13, 1-10 is a section in Revelation that talks specifically and directly about the Antichrist. But there's two other main passages that I'd like to look at first. And they are 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12 and 15-17, and also Daniel chapter 7. So today is just 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, parts of chapter 2. Next week will be Daniel chapter 7. And we're going to see that what these other passages explain will help us to understand what Revelation says about the Antichrist. Remember, Revelation is based on pictures and symbols, and these help to explain those pictures and symbols. So, what is the context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? Well, imagine this. You've had the Apostle Paul come through, and you have been told that the rapture is going to happen, and then after the rapture, there's going to be the tribulation. Halfway through the tribulation, there's going to be this abomination of desolation where he's going to defile the temple, and then Jesus comes back at the end of the seven years. Now, some people have come into your church, and they've said, the tribulation has started. Now, what's it going to make you think? The tribulation started. But hang on, didn't the rapture come first? Yeah, you missed the rapture. Oh, no. You missed the rapture. Help! <laughs> this, is, this is shocking. And they were shaken and alarmed. So that's the context, okay, of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So what Paul does, and it's good for us, really, because what Paul does is he's going to go through and he's going to set everything straight. He's going to go through it and show them step by step what the order of events. So it's really, really good what this teaches us in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So let's read through some of the verses, starting verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. For that day, the tribulation, will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the Antichrist. The one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Verse 5. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, the Antichrist back. For he can be revealed only when his time comes. 
for this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. I'll explain that in a minute. It's the Holy Spirit in the church stopping, holding back the evil that wants to dominate the world. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed when the church has been taken away. But the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. And that's the second coming, the end of the tribulation. Verse 9, this man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. They will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Verse 15, With all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you both in person and by letter. Stand firm, keep a strong grip. Now by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Alright, so again, the context of Second Thessalonians 2 is that the believers in the church of Thessalonica had been told by these false teachers that the tribulation had already begun, which meant that they thought they'd missed the rapture, or prophecy had failed, the Bible had failed. So, remember that the rapture comes before the seven-year tribulation period. We've been through that a lot before, especially when we went through Revelation chapter 4, and in the earlier chapters, So the church does not go into the seven-year tribulation period. So the result of this false teaching was that the faith of these believers was badly shaken. So Paul is going to go through and set things in order. His main point is that the church must be removed before the Antichrist can be revealed and that the tribulation only begins when the Antichrist is revealed. So I've got this thing up here. The sequence of events for the start of the tribulation. Most of this is provision, but it's good to, to know it. The rapture happens. The church is caught up to meet Jesus in the air and goes on to heaven. That happens first. That's the next prophetic event that we're waiting for. Two, a short time later, the Antichrist is revealed when he confirms the peace treaty with Israel. So we will know who he is when he confirms the peace treaty with Israel. He's the guy that will do that. And this is the start of the tribulation. So... Number three, the tribulation begins when the peace treaty is confirmed by the Antichrist. So the tribulation begins when the peace treaty is confirmed, basically. That's the way the Bible states it. So, put simply, Paul's reasoning to the people in Thessalonica was that, hey, listen guys, the tribulation can't have begun yet because the church is still on earth. The church has not been raptured. Or another way of saying it is, as long as the church is still here, the Antichrist can't be revealed, and therefore the seven-year tribulation can't begin. Again, as long as the church is on the earth, the tribulation is still future because the rapture happens first. Does that make sense? Simple enough? So that's Paul's point. So now we're going to read it again. I'm going to ask you some questions, all right? Some of the verses, some of the words in the verses are in bold, okay? So the ones that are in bold, I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask a question. So, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? What event is that? That's the second coming, and that happens when? End of the end of the tribulation. Good, okay. It's Jesus' physical return to the earth. And then it continues on, and how we will be gathered to meet him. What's that referring to? taken up. We're gathered to meet him. Okay, It's a reference to the rapture. When does the rapture happen? Before the tribulation. And then it continues. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord, what's the day of the Lord? 
this seven-year tribulation, very good, has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew, do not be deceived. He says, here, don't be fooled by what they say. For that day, what's that day? Yep, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of judgment. This is seven-year tribulation. Will not come until there is a great rebellion against God. What's the great rebellion against God? Now, we haven't covered this before. It's called the great apostasy. And basically, it's a mass turning away of people in the church from God. And we'll cover that later. There's a verse I'll read to you about that. And then it continues, And the man of lawlessness. Now, who is the man of lawlessness? The Antichrist, good, is revealed. What does revealed mean? He's made known. His identity is made known. The one who brings destruction. Verse 4, He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Now what event is that talking about? Yeah, it happens in the middle. What's it called? What does Jesus call it? Abomination of desolation. Yeah. The Antichrist goes into the temple. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. I mean, no more from other parts of the Bible he put a statue of himself in the middle of the temple in the center part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And Daniel 9.27 tells us that this happens precisely at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. All right, moving on to verse 5. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? That's interesting, isn't it? There for three weeks, and he tells them all this stuff. And you know what is holding him back, for he can be revealed. Who's he? The Antichrist. Only when his time comes. When is his time? Tribulation, yeah? For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. So, we have deception going on in the church and in the world, and it's kind of under the carpet. It's very subtle. But when the church is taken away, it will lose its subtlety it will be very clear who this guy is. He's going to initially come across as being a nice guy, but halfway through, he'll show his true colors. Okay, then the man of lawlessness, who's that? Antichrist, yep, will be revealed, but the Lord will slay him. Who's him? Antichrist, yep. With the breath of his mouth and destroy him again. The Antichrist. By the splendor of his coming, who's coming? Jesus coming, the second coming. All right, and go on to verse 9. This man, who's this man? Antichrist, yep, will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. Now, counterfeit power, signs and miracles, which means they're going to look like they come from God. Who's he in verse 10? Antichrist will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on the way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So why do people go to hell? Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. It's there in front of them, but they refuse to repent. And you can see John 3, 18 to 21. It's very clear about that. Verse 11, so God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they will believe these lies. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Again, why are people condemned? They're refusing to believe the truth. And the key there is enjoying evil. They're condemned for enjoying evil. They have refused to repent. Their love of their sin, their pleasure they get from their sin is so great that they don't want to give it up. Remember that repent means to turn from sin and turn to God. Another way of defining repent is that it means to confess and forsake all sin. All right. 
And now verse 15. With all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. Now, what's he referring to? Stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching you passed on to you. What teaching? About the end times, about the Antichrist. Stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching you passed on to you, both in person and by letter. So, have a good understanding of the end times. The rapture, the tribulation, the Antichrist, the second coming, the millennial reign. And then verse 16 is the good part of this. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. So the question here is, what is the effect of standing firm and having a strong grip or good understanding of end times doctrinal teaching? We experience, yeah, eternal comfort and wonderful hope and we are strengthened in everything we do and say. Now, some people say, oh, you know, eschatology, the study of end times, is too much for new believers to take in, and it should only be for more mature believers. Let them be a Christian for 10 years or so. <laughs> but consider that Paul was only in the city of Thessalonica for three weeks as he was traveling on one of his missionary journeys. And you find that in Acts 17, verse 2. He was there for three Sabbaths. And look at what it says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Don't you remember that I told you all about this when I was with you? He's going, hey, why are you fooled? Why are you listening to these guys? I told you this at the start when I was with you for three weeks, when you were baby Christians. Why is it so important? Because of that eternal hope, the glorious future, the wonderful hope, the eternal comfort and the wonderful hope of a bright, and glorious future that God has for us. Now, don't you think that we, in our day today, that we also need eternal comfort and a wonderful hope to go through the trials that we face? <laughs> I do. <laughs> and there's this saying, as we come to understand that God is completely in control of world events, we can start to have faith that he is also in control of our individual lives. And that's really important, I think. As we come to understand that God is completely in control of world events, we start to have faith that he is also in control of our individual lives. So I'm just going to go through this passage in 2 Thessalonians and go through and tease out what did Paul teach them in the first three weeks? Well, here's a list on the board. It says the rapture, the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, or the tribulation, the great rebellion against God, the abomination of desolation, the rapture, and then the Antichrist revealed. That's the sequence of events. How to identify the Antichrist and start the tribulation. When does Jesus come back? And the sequence of events for the seven-year tribulation. So if Paul thought that it was good and beneficial for his churches to understand these things, then I think it's good that we should try and understand these things. So let's just go through it. So the rapture. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1 and how we will be gathered to meet him. So the rapture is a future event coming soon, I hope, when in the blink of an eye the church is caught up to meet Jesus in the air and receive their glorified bodies. We then continue on to heaven and spend that seven years of the tribulation in heaven, not on earth. And the references there are 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Now, the second thing that Paul taught them was the second coming of Christ. And that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Again, the second coming of Christ is when Jesus physically comes back to the earth with the church to claim the world for himself at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And we then rule and reign with him for a thousand years. That's the millennial reign. The third thing he taught them was the day of the Lord, or the seven-year tribulation. So we haven't really covered the day of the Lord before. So the day of the Lord is the Old Testament name for the tribulation. 
Okay, does that make sense? So in the Old Testament, when you read the day of the Lord, it's referring to this future day of judgment on the whole earth. We're going to read a couple of scriptures that will explain that. So it says in Thessalonians 2 verse 2, Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say the day of the Lord has already begun. People are saying that already. These cults and stuff are saying, the tribulation's already happened, or the, the millennium's already started. No, don't be shaken by that. Don't be deceived. So, again, the day of the Lord is a phrase often used in the Old Testament, and it always refers to this cataclysmic future judgment when God judges all the earth. And in the New Testament, it's referred to as the time of tribulation in Mark 13, 19, and 24. And it's referred to in Revelation as the Great Tribulation in Revelation 2.22 and 7.14. And when Daniel tells us, and Revelation also confirms that the day of the Lord, the Tribulation, lasts for how long? Seven years, yeah. Two lots of three and a half years. One half and the second half. And Jesus tells us that the day of the Lord will be in time of tribulation, but the second half will be a time of great tribulation. So as you read about Jacob's trouble or great tribulation, it's talking about the second half of the tribulation period, the second half of the seven years. The second half is worse than the first half. It's going to be really bad. People will be dying in the first half, but it's going to be shocking in the second half. Wholesale slaughter of any believer and judgments from God, which are just incredibly awful. So, just remember, the day of the Lord and the tribulation are both synonymous terms. They both refer to the same thing, yeah? So here's a couple of examples of the day of the Lord being spoken of in the Old Testament, or Jacob's trouble. The first one refers to it as Jacob's trouble. So it's Jeremiah 30, verse 7. I'm going to read it from two different translations. Alas! For that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he, Jacob, Israel, shall be saved out of it. And we've been through Revelation 12 and other places where God saves the nation of Israel. So again, it corresponds perfectly with what we learned in Revelation so far. And the New Living Translation says, In all history there has never been such a time of terror. Look at the language here, a time of terror. It will be a time of trouble for my people Israel, yet in the end they will be saved. Is that true? Revelation chapter 12, Jesus looks after his people and then he comes back to get them, yeah? So, chapter 12 in Revelation was Satan persecuting the nation of Israel and it fits perfectly. Now, Isaiah, this is a more descriptive passage and it just makes you realize why you don't want to be in the tribulation, okay, this day of the Lord. So let's start in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Scream in terror, for the day of the Lord has arrived. The time for the Almighty to destroy. I think that makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? Every arm is paralyzed with fear, every heart melts, and people are terrified. Pangs of anguish grip them, like those of a woman in labor. They look helplessly at one another, their faces aflame with fear. For see, the day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be made desolate and all the sinners destroyed with it. The heavens will be black above them and the stars will give no light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will provide no light. This is the purpose of the tribulation. Okay, so the Bible interprets the Bible. Verse 11 says, I, the Lord, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sin. Okay? So as we read the Old Testament scripture about the day of the Lord, it tells us more about it and it tells us why. I, the Lord, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sin. This is a worldwide punishment. I will crush the arrogance of the proud and humble the pride of the mighty. I will make people scarcer than gold. You see how bad this is going to be? More rare than the fine gold of Ophir, for I will shake the heavens, the earth will move from its place. 
when the Lord of Heaven's armies displays His wrath in the day of His fierce anger. So, we've already started going through in previous weeks the judgments, like in chapter 6 and chapter 8. It's where they've got the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. This fits in perfectly. It describes what it would feel like to be on the earth during these judgments. Okay, so the day of the Lord, tribulation, same thing. All right, the next one, the next thing that Paul taught them, and I haven't taught you yet, is this great rebellion against God. So we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Don't be fooled by what they say, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come until there is a great rebellion against God. So this great rebellion against God is referred to in Christian circles as the great apostasy, or as another version calls it, the falling away in the New King James. And 1 Timothy 4.1 and 2 Timothy 4.3-4 give us more details about this great apostasy, this great rebellion against God. So let's read those two verses. So 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in when? The last times, or the last days, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. Now we move on to 2 Timothy 4.3-4 For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. Okay, future time, a time is coming. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. This is the great rebellion against God. This happens before the tribulation. This happens before the rapture. The church will be in a terrible state when Jesus comes to take us up to him. So what this basically is saying in that in the last days, there will be many professing believers, both true and false converts, that will be following after false teaching. And examples of false teaching are the prosperity gospel and the various works-based gospels. So Jesus himself said that when he comes back, will he really find faith? Or another version says, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? And that's Luke 18.8. It's going to be so hard in the end times, it's going to get harder and harder, and a lot of Christians are going to give up. Another verse says, I didn't write it down, it says, because sin abounds, the love of many will grow cold. That's another way of saying the same thing. It's going to be hard to live as a dedicated believer who's fully in love with the Lord, fully dedicated to the Lord in these end days. It's going to be hard. So I'm going to suggest to you, I I am suggesting to you that this great apostasy, this great rebellion against God has already started. It's not the world, it's the church. False doctrines are exploding, spreading like cancer. It's getting harder and harder to find people who are really dedicated to serving the Lord who are fully submitted to him and are dedicated to studying his word. And generally speaking, the modern church has become what I call, or what a lot of people call, seeker-friendly. You heard that term before? People go to the church where they feel the most happy. It makes them feel good. And church is now a feel-good place instead of a growing place where you're challenged and you're given opportunity to serve. Another sign that we're in the last days is that there's very few people who are willing to share the gospel with others. And they not only are unwilling to share, but also unwilling to learn how to. Now the next thing that Paul taught his very young church in Thessalonica was the abomination of desolation. He will exalt himself, Second Thessalonians 2 verse 4, he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. So the Antichrist goes into the temple of God. He sits in the temple of God, in the Holy of Holies, and claims that he is God. He defiles the temple. He stops the sacrifices. Matthew 24.15, Jesus calls this the abomination of desolation. Daniel 9.27 tells it happens at the halfway point. Three and a half years or 42 months or 1,260 days into the seven-year tribulation. 
The sixth thing that he taught them was that the Antichrist can't be revealed until the church is caught up to be with Jesus. So this is interesting. This is new. So I haven't taught you this before. We haven't been through this before. Second Thessalonians 2, 6-7 For he can be revealed only when his time comes. That's As we know, that's a tribulation. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one, that's the Holy Spirit, who is holding it back, steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, simply put, what did Jesus describe the church as? Salt and light. Okay, we have a preserving influence. While the church is on the earth, people are praying. People are out there witnessing. People are preserving this world. Okay, we think it's getting pretty bad, but you just wait and take the church away and see how quickly it'll get rotten. Yeah, the, this world has a lot to be thankful for with the church. The church is literally holding things together, it's not doing it very well, but it's still doing it. And the reason it's still doing it is because it's the Holy Spirit in the church and the Holy Spirit is not limited completely by our ineffectiveness and our unfaithfulness. We could be doing more, we could be more effective in our preserving influence, but we are still having an influence and that's the main thing. When the church is taken away, it's the Holy Spirit's influence through the church that is removed. It's not the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit's influence through the church. Okay, Because God works through people. And so when that happens, then the Antichrist can rise to power. Lawlessness will just explode. You don't want to be on the earth during the tribulation period. So some people are speculating, and I agree with them, that the Antichrist is probably alive now, but it's clear, this makes it clear, that we will not know who the Antichrist is. He will not be revealed until after the rapture, so don't bother trying to look for the Antichrist. Figure out who he is. So, the seventh thing he taught them was how to identify the Antichrist and the start of the tribulation. Now, I want to help you understand what the anti means in Antichrist. This guy is not going to be mean and nasty. He's going to come across as a nice guy, a man of peace. He's going to flatter people and solve problems. He'll get people working together. He's not going to appear evil. There's this scripture in 2 Corinthians 11:13-15 that tells us about how Satan works, how he deceives people. All right? So let's read 2 Corinthians 11:13-15. These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. In the movie Left Behind, one of them, the preacher is up the front and he's telling, explaining about what the Antichrist is going to do about the seven-year covenant. And one of the congregation members stands up, but he can't be the Antichrist. He's such a nice guy. He's only got the good of the world at heart. He can't be the Antichrist. He's, he's too nice. He's a peacemaker. Look at all the good that he's done for the world. He's bringing everyone to work together. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So, in summary, you won't recognize the Antichrist because he's wearing a red cape. He has the horns on his head and embraced fire. <laughs> okay. Think about the false apostles and false prophets and false teachers around today. They're so convincing and hard to pick out because they come across as being nice. However, in reality they are who? Whose servants? Satan's servants, disguised as Christ's servants. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. So the anti and antichrist means counterfeit. It means he looks, sounds and feels like the real thing. But he's a fake. So here's another verse that shows just how good a fake the antichrist will be. Remember, this is the Apostle John talking fairly close to the end of his life. Okay, He's quite old when he's writing this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18-19 to 19. 
Dear children, the last hour is here. Remember, he didn't know when the tribulation was going to happen or the rapture was going to happen. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So the Antichrist is coming. Okay, I've taught you the Antichrist is coming. And already such Antichrists have appeared. That means people who have the same role of deceiving people, but just on a lesser scale. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, notice they were in the church, but they never really belonged with us, otherwise they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. So, how did John know who these antichrists were, these false prophets, these false teachers? Only when they left the church and didn't come back. So, these antichrists, these you know deceivers, they look so much like dinky die, true blue, <laughs> rigididge, men of God, that while they were in the church, it was really difficult to discern if they were true or false. So, what's the bottom line here? We need to know our Bibles or we will be deceived. True? So, John taught that the Antichrist is coming, but there were people who have the same ministry of the Antichrist, and that is to appear as ministers of God and to deceive people. And that's happening more and more in our day. So, if he's going to come across as a really nice guy, not wearing horns and red cape and breathing fire, how do we know? Well, we've already studied this. This is Daniel 9.27. The ruler will make a treaty with the people, that's Israel, for a period of one set of seven. So the start of the tribulation is determined, or starts when, the treaty is signed. The seven-year peace treaty with Israel. Guess what? What's happening in the Middle East right now? What did Jesus say? When you see these things start to happen, look up, for your salvation draws near. Yeah. We see nations, Arab nations, making peace with Israel. This is new. This is a new thing. And this is pointing to this overarching peace agreement between Israel and all the Muslim nations and the world. So we know when the tribulation starts, it's a short time after the rapture, and the seven-year countdown clock starts ticking the day the Antichrist confirms a peace treaty with Israel. Now, the last thing Paul would have taught is, when does Jesus come back? Exactly when? Well, Revelation tells us half the tribulation is 1,260 days. So what's double that? Where's your maths? What's double... 1,260 days. 2,520. So from the time the Antichrist signs the or confirms the peace treaty with Israel, there will be 2,520 days, according to Revelation and according to Daniel, until Jesus comes back. And halfway through, Satan reveals himself as his true self. No more nice guy. And people have to worship him as Satan. Okay. So here's a dispensation chart. How many days from the start of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation? That blue section? 2,520. If you're living in the Tribulation, you've got 2,520 days until Jesus comes back, if you make it through. So now I'm just going to finish off with the sequence of events for the seven-year tribulation. So it's on the screen here. The first thing that happens is the rapture. The church is caught up from the earth to be with Jesus. The second thing is that there's a short time of preparation before the seven-year tribulation begins as the Antichrist begins his rise to power. Third thing, the clock starts ticking. The seven-year clock starts ticking when the Antichrist confirms a peace agreement with Israel for seven years. And that's Daniel's 70th week. That's the final seven years decreed for Israel. 
Number four, halfway through, the Antichrist breaks his promises to Israel and defiles the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, claiming to be God. There's no more pretense or ecumenical religion. It's worship Satan through the Antichrist or die. So number five, the second half of the seven-year tribulation is called the Great Tribulation, or Jacob's Trouble. There will be intense persecution of believers, Jew and Gentile. And the nation of Israel, as we learnt in Revelation 12, will be kept in a safe place. Moab, or Jordan, as we know it today. And six, the end of the seven-year tribulation is when Jesus comes back to claim the earth for himself, as predicted many times in the scriptures. And Jesus then reigns on the earth for a thousand years, and that's the millennial reign. So if you go through prophecy in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you'll see prophecy regarding nations, but you'll see many prophecies regarding the tribulation, and then you'll see other prophecies regarding the millennial reign. So if you can figure out, oh, that's talking about a time of peace, a time of Jesus reigning, that fits in the millennial reign, that fits into the the last thousand years. Or it's talking about time of judgment, ah, that fits into the tribulation. Now, first want to revise the reasons for studying prophecy. One, Jesus said so. Two, a third of all the Bible is prophecy and we need to know all of it to be properly equipped. Three, Revelation says we are blessed if we do. Four, it's very relevant for today because we're living in the last days. Five, we don't want to be deceived and we want to help people who are deceived. Six, Understanding prophecy gives us assurance for the future. Seven, understanding prophecy gives us more opportunities to share the gospel because it's relevant to today. People are interested. And the last one, number eight, for those, unfortunately, who haven't repented but think they're Christians, if they know and are aware of what the Bible teaches and they see it happening before their eyes, they're more likely to repent and be saved, even if they have to go through the tribulation. Okay. These are questions to finish the day. Anti-Semitism has two main sources. What are they? The church is one, and what's a doctrine called? Replacement theology, where the church has replaced Israel. And the other one is called the ancient... Ancient hatred, it's the Arabs versus the Jews. Okay. When will the Antichrist be revealed? After the rapture. Very good. Who will directly empower and direct the Antichrist? Satan. Very good. How will the Antichrist come across at the start of the tribulation? Mr. Nice Guy. Very good. Yep. All right. Is the rapture the start of the tribulation? No, it's not. The signing of the peace treaty is the start of the tribulation. There's a short time gap between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. So when does the tribulation start? Just answer that. Signing of the of the peace treaty. The clock starts ticking the sign of the peace treaty. How will people know for sure who the Antichrist is? When he signs the peace treaty. Okay. All right. What is the abomination of desolation and when does it happen? Halfway through and what happens? He sits in the temple and claims to be God. Good. Okay. When will the world really know what the Antichrist is really like? I reckon halfway through. When they've already been deceived and they've already taken the mark of the beast. Yeah, a great deception, great deception. But after that, it's too late. Okay, how many days are there from the start of the tribulation when the covenant is signed to the end, when Jesus comes back? Two thousand five hundred and twenty days. Seven years, good. And what happens after, last question, what happens after the seven-year tribulation? 
What comes after the tribulation? What, what's the next? The millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Very good. Okay. So I've got one scripture to read you to finish off today. It's Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people. Now look at verse 5 on the board there. It says, Which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. Again, when did Paul teach about end times? When he first heard about the good news. He gives us hope, a confident hope. Okay, Lord, give us this confident hope, we pray, as we understand more about the end times. Lord, may it increase our confidence in your faithfulness to us and your ability to control not only the things that are happening in the world, but also things in our personal lives. Help us to commit ourselves to studying these things so that we can become prepared and useful for your kingdom to share your message to this lost and dying world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.